Folks, you have stumbled into Full Contact Cannabis, which is a little podcast being sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown. And we have a new sponsor this year, the Old Hemp Farmer's Wife Topicals. It's nice to have another sponsor. But we're blessed to have John Kearns, who is, are you the president of New Bloom? I guess they call me the CEO. CEO. That'll work real well. And I cannot tell you how happy we are to have you on. Because for one thing, we've never had uh, anybody has a cannabis testing lab. Also, I forgot to mention Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media, who's bi-coastal. What coast are you on this morning? I'm on the East Coast this morning. Okay. So you're up and ready to go instead of being woke up. Yes, sir. I just started my second uh, latte. So good to go. Okay. Good. All right. Um, John, I think we're just, for one thing, Say who you are and tell us the name of your company. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. My name is John Kearns, and my brother and I founded New Bloom Labs back in back in 2019, and I I serve as its CEO. Uh, we are a testing lab focused on serving the uh, hip market throughout the United States out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, with some uh, plans for some expansion in the next in the next year or two, which I can really only preview for you on this podcast. Maybe you'll have me <laughs> back when the when the announcement is official. Okay, well, way cool. We will tell nobody. <laughs> All right. One of the things I'm kind of curious is why go into a, a cannabis testing laboratory? You know, I think to answer that question, we we really have to to think about what was going on in 2019. In early 2019, we come off the 2018 Farm Bill. As we know, that is a a well-told story that opens up domestic hemp production in the United States at scale. Um, And I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So there were, I mean, it just felt like dozens and dozens of folks talking about getting into the hemp business. Most folks were talking about they wanted to grow hemp. There are a lot of folks talking. There's more than a dozen. Oh, oh. Well, that's right. But it just seemed like every time you put, you turned around, you know, there'd be a group of people talking about they're getting their hemp investment together. And you're right. It was well, well more than a dozen. But, you know, I, I had a lot of people in my life uh, that I knew really well in the business community in Chattanooga that sort of had brought this to my attention. And so and I own some property outside of town. And I thought, well, maybe I need to be in hemp production. And so I did some research and I and I realized that growing hemp and producing products was not for me. Number one, I have zero expertise in it. Um, but what I kept hearing over and over and over was frustration about lab testing. And um, having been an entrepreneur for a long time, you know, I recognized there was a need there in the southeastern United States. My brother and I did tons of research and really carefully considered what we were doing, given that we are not chemists ourselves. Um, But end result is in June of 2019, New Bloom Labs opens its doors. But I mean, no, a lab. That's what I'm saying is you went from, okay, I'm thinking about growing cannabis for CBD to doing a lab. Yeah. So it it was really about recognizing that there there was a need there. And, you know, just kind of the the folks that, that Jesse and I are, you know, we realized that the being able to serve and support what looked like a, a, a massive new agricultural co- commodity was sort of where we felt more comfortable. Uh, instead of being an outright production, you know, we wanted to be an ancillary that would support that work 
you know, we come from we come from East Tennessee, and again, when you have to really think back to 2019 to appreciate this story. We come from Upper East Tennessee, which had been the really the the center of the universe for Burley Burley uh, tobacco production for many decades. And you know, at the time, it seemed like a new uh, agricultural product was going to be produced at scale that might even resemble something like that. Now we know what's happened in the four years hence, and that that didn't exactly come to pass. But but you know, we were really excited about what uh, hemp and cannabis could do for rural communities and community economic development. We really wanted to be a part of it. And we thought our role from a business point of view was better to be supportive than to be out outright competing in a production market. So you just want, uh, in a nice way, you want to cash in on the green revolution. Well, we want to be part of, <laughs> of what was coming. It's okay. <laughs> Got well, most of the people in. Yeah, look, I, I I make no apologies for the fact that, that <laughs> we're here doing business, but but really and truly, you know, it was about again, we grew up in the country in East Tennessee. You know, this was you know exciting for us to you know to kind of get, you know, get back and participate in agriculture in a way, um, which is something you know we hadn't done since we really left home. Um, and you know, it seemed like there was this swelling tide, and we wanted to be a part of it. And uh, I can say right now, with even with all of the the trials and tribulations that hemp production has gone through over the last four years. I'm thrilled we made the choice, and and you know we've got a we've got a, a good business now that that still serves domestic hemp production you know throughout the United States. Before you got in, how much did you investigate the history of laboratories and cannabis? Well, look, we we knew that there were some problems there. You know, the main thing we saw was a lack of laboratories in our region of the United States, and so. The lab business was centered where you thought, where you would expect it would be at that point. A lot of West Coast labs, the old, the, 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 the mountain state labs, and then a few up in the East Coast, particularly centered around Massachusetts. There were other ones scattered around, uh, but that's where the majority of them were. And what we, what we saw, the main thing, the main glaring point related to turnaround time, we had local producers that were waiting two, three plus weeks for full panel tests. Um, and so, you know, that's the main feature that we saw. We also saw that there was a lot of frustration around variance in the results themselves. So we knew that those sort of flaws in the testing portion of the industry existed. Um, and, you know, we were interested in trying to start a business that, that could hopefully, uh, take a leadership role in, in solving some of those issues. Well, speaking of those issues, we were all naive when we went into professional cannabis. We totally all all of us That's underestimated the di difficulties. When you saw how difficult it was for other labs, uh, what made you so confident that you could come in and do better? Well, I got to say that a lot of the lab issues tended to be related to, to two things. One, um, technical know-how in some instances seemed to be lacking. And the other was uh, a commitment to ethics, in some cases seemed to be lacking. Um, we're talking about just plain old ethical lab practices. And so in order to truly address both of those weak weaknesses, um, it really comes down to who we hired. And it comes down to the fact that we hired Natalie Syracuse, who um, you know, proved to us that you know, her, her commitment to sound laboratory ethics was unimpeachable. What was her background? 
she came out of the toxicology world. She had so, but she was she wasn't in cannabis. She wasn't in cannabis. She came okay. out of uh, the analytical testing um, industry in toxicology, and she had done a lot of method development around separating isomers in uh, in various uh, drugs, particularly street and pharmaceutical drugs. Um, and and so she had a great deal of experience and know how. She was excited to apply that in the cannabis realm. And so not only did she possess the expertise um, around, you know, challenging analytical problems. And what I'm talking about is, se is separating isomers. Not only that, with she paired that expertise with a commitment to, to the ethics. And that was the approach that really uh, mirrored what Jesse and I wanted to try and accomplish here. So how long did it take you guys to get it, I mean, brought in? Because everybody, one of the... I, a little bit about lab and i think we ought to go into actually how difficult lab you know coas or certificates of analysis are and how long did it take you guys to develop your protocol well let me say that new bloom labs opened as a potency testing lab only first that first summer through that harvest of 2019 we we were doing well let me amend that just a little bit we were doing potency and terpene analysis so we spent the first part of 2019 developing our potency assay, making it uh, both accurate, precise, and efficient, and the same thing on the, on, the, on the terpene assay. And so through 2019, that was essentially, we, we were running a limited lab. Now, that worked out just fine because most of the world was just beginning hemp production, <laughs> and, the, and that's the only testing anyone was interested in. Well, not tr not really. <laughs> no, and whatever, because I got you know talk about the frustrations that we had. We're we do R and D, and one of the biggest frustrations we had with laboratories, and I'll tell you our laboratory history. We started out in 2014 with Analytical 360, and this was the frustration. All these guys were knew how to find THC Delta Nine like a son of a gun. But when you started coming in and wanting to see the CBD, the CBGs, it realized that they had not kind of developed their protocols. They weren't, yeah. I mean, you find what you're looking for. And so we went from them to Steep Hill and ended up finally with Trace Analytical. It, and it was, like I said, it was really, really frustrating because you almost had, and you know, still, I mean, we use you, John, you know that. This disclaimer, Tennessee Homegrown uses New Bloom for our testing. So we have a relationship. So there's the disclaimer. But in the early days, if you were really trying to do any sort of research, it was infinitely frustrating. It really yeah. was. Yeah, I can imagine. So, you know, by 2019, um, there was more literature existed. So there was a base of knowledge there. Um, you know, not all of it flawless, but there was scholarship out there. And of course, you know, we relied on that scholarship at that point. Now, when it comes to specific method development, Natalie's not on this podcast, and she's the only one that can talk those specifics. But I'll, but I'll tell you, we spent months and months and months honing in, uh, developing, discarding, rewriting the potency <laughs> and terpene yeah. method that that got us through 2019. And and you know, you got to remember, there were in, just in Tennessee, there were about just short of three thousand permitted lots and. In Tennessee for hemp production, not all of those produced, but you know, there was this 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 rush to produce USDA legal cannabis, 
and uh, and you know most folks tested for potency and then wanted to sell their biomass at the time. That was kind of you know, and I'm generalizing Harold, but that was that was kind of the practice. So we did not build and put up our full panel safety testing laboratory until spring of 2020. So you can imagine in spring of 2020, you know, we invest in all of this brand new, beautiful, agile instrumentation. We moved to a new, bigger, beautiful facility. We're installing all of that. And, and you know, there are two pieces of, you know, very serious news that affect our business, you know, in that season. Number one, COVID-19 hits. And then number two, we realize that the world has overproduced USDA cannabis. And so a lot of these prices just start absolutely plummeting. And so right about the time that we get that, the safety laboratory up and running, you know, those are our new market realities. And at that point, you know, we were watching the contraction in the industry and, uh, and, you know, we're doing everything we can to increase our, our customer footprint. You know, so those first few months we have, most of our customer base was centered in Tennessee and Alabama. Um, and there were others around in Kentucky and, and elsewhere, but um, that's that's where most of our customers were. At that point, you know, the job, our job from a, a service point of view is to reach people coast to coast. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say we've been pretty successful with that since then. Speaking of coast to coast, how much do you keep track of other laboratories in recreational states? Well, we always have to kind of passively be watching what's going on. And, you know, if you're going to ask me about a specific laboratory or two, I probably oh, no, no, not I'm going not, to know anything no. about that. What I'm talking about is in general. Yeah. There are, have been industry trends with labs. And yep. uh, uh, don't know how much you want to go into it, but I'd love to go into it a whole bunch. The concept of shopping for a lab. Yeah. Uh, look, it is a primary concern of ours as an organization. Uh, it is something that we take a lot of time to address just interpersonally with our customers. It's something that we try and communicate with, with our, you know, with our socials and YouTube and whatnot. And let me, let me also, you know, and I'll be happy to answer any question you've got here as best as I can. But well, no, what I mean, do you me, understand what I'm talking about? Shopping for lab? Yeah, lab shopping is actually, I'll, I'll, I'll go one better, Harold. Lab shopping exists, THC pumping exists. And in fact, I will say that the lab part of the of the cannabis industry is currently structurally cannabis's biggest Achilles heel, with the, maybe the exception of, you know, the ongoing federal prohibition part. But well, and that's bad. what I want to that's it's what bad. I really I that's what I really, really want to go into because our dear little podcast goes everywhere, for one thing. Yep. And you're trying to go everywhere. I do not think a huge amount of people, even cannabis professionals, know the fact that you can go out and it, let's say you have D8, and D8 is the perfect poster child for it, uh, that is supposedly compliant, which means it should be a distillate and 99.7% uh, D8, and that's a rare bird, and you yeah. know that. Okay, yep. well... I knew for a fact that there were labs that if you went and sent your D8 third party to these labs, they'd give you the results basically that you wanted. Yeah, that's exactly what was going on. It was a huge problem. And look, it's still well, no, it's still a huge problem. It's still a huge problem. But you know, there was a moment in time there where it seemed, Harold, like like just, you know, 
hip was turning all of its attention to Delta eight. Everyone was in the business. There was this consumer. Well, yeah, because if you didn't, you died. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, the telltale sign uh, of a laboratory that may be engaged in less than ethical practices is if when you submit their samples, they ask you for your target concentration ahead of time. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> look, and, and, and <laughs> look, if you, if you, if you start to do business with a laboratory and you send in the D8 and they want to know ahead of time, if you, if you're sending D8 and they want to know what your target concentration is, run, do not. No, well, but no, if, that but that's what I'm saying is the system is set up to be gained. That's, that's right. Okay. And that's what my whole point is. Nobody's, I mean, let's face it. If, if the difference between a kilo of D8 distillate is $1,500, which is basically the difference between what you got, you the difference between real compliant D8 and D8 that comes in around 7% D9. Yeah. Okay. Which is about what it runs. The whole point though is how to, how this gamemanship is going on and it's even worse in recreational i mean i've been in cannabis now for a way long time i mean too long and all of a sudden cannabis you know that was winning uh cups you know the cannabis cup in amsterdam that were coming in from 18 to 22 yeah. as soon as it became recreational in the united states started getting bumped up 28 30 yeah that's right but what are you and your brethren doing about that well let me give you one example um, I was in Austin, Texas this week, and I met with three governors to talk about exactly this issue. Uh, met with governors and their staff. Um, these are governors that are trying to figure out how to rein in the problem, or they are setting up a system. Uh, they're setting up a cannabis program now through legislation, and they want to get ahead of it. They want to make sure that they're only attracting ethical and precise and accurate laboratories to their program. And so I am thankful to say that there are uh, policymakers out there that are engaged in the issue. And it's, ultimately, and the, the bad news here, guys, is ultimately that's what it's going to take. It's going to well, take no, but a form in the, way, in, the, in the public policies that guide cannabis production. Do we want politicians to do uh, see this, where are, you'll get some pushback, me? Yeah. These are people who don't know anything about cannabis trying to come in and make rules about it. What I'm talking about is the industry itself. Mm -hmm. basically what we're saying is we don't have enough discipline to to take you know to rein in and have our own standards well uh the the problem isn't going away yet and so the answer unfortunately to your question might be yes now let me say that let me also <laughs> say that there's a couple things going on here that that are going to support some change number one lawsuits are starting to fly that that is going to to rein this in i think it's going to have the effect of reining it in and also the problem is just getting a lot more press than it used to right again i spoke to three governors who were asking the question how do i get this right the the word is getting out there's a lot of dialogue about it in the industry when you go to industry conferences there's a lot of talk about lab shopping and thc pumping and forgery of micro results and pesticide results and whatnot uh, post-testing manipulation, all, all these issues. And I will say, you know, it does seem that there is a side of the industry that's really working to try and address this. But there's also, let's just go ahead and be frank, there's a side of the industry that, that would prefer the status quo. Well, the only thing I've found, and probably if I didn't do R&D, I probably wouldn't be so 
adamant about testing, but you can't formulate unless you have actual real life tests. And right. that's been the frustration. But this is creeping in also uh, on the consumer side. The one of the things that is frustrating is if a consumer pays X amount of money because it has X amount of bang to the buck and it's only three quarters of that, that's where I, I think the problem really comes in. And is this the whole bang for the buck thing a result of prohibition? I will always say that ending cannabis prohibition is a net good for a multitude of reasons. If you end prohibition and you uh, give producers access to you know, the right insurance products, the right banking products, you normalize the business, um, you get sophisticated investors uh, in that won't stand for fraudulent practices. Look, that, oh, that's, no, whoa, whoa, that's only whoa. a good When's that going to happen? Great question. Well, first of all, you got to end, you got to end <laughs> federal prohibition. No, no. What I'm talking about the investors that come in there with hearts of gold, because you to me, understand, you know, when you have you know institutional, uh, you know, federally chartered banks that are that are supporting some of these investments. I mean, there's going to be a a higher level of diligence to make sure that these operations are running a little cleaner than they may be running now. Like I said, we're here. Oh, I'm sorry. Also, Mark, you got to have some questions by now, don't you? I, actually, I don't. This has uh, been very thorough so far. And <laughs> as, I, as I came up with a question, uh, John immediately answered it before he even asked it. Um, if, if it's okay, if we go back to when you guys got into the business and you mentioned turnaround time and two to three weeks what is your target turnaround time for your lab and are you achieving that and are current clients more comfortable and happy with that turnaround well so every test we run except for one is typically turned around on a next business day basis now there are some exceptions to that typically if we see something in the data that requires us to do a little extra diligence then in that case, we might hold the result for a day so that we can do that diligence so that we can confirm the data that we're seeing. That's just a part of the our, our data review process, which goes through three reviews before we publish a report. Sometimes we may actually opt to hold a report for a day. Um, now, microbial testing, because we have to do a plate, and grow a culture. There's no way around it. We're, we are somewhere between three and four business day turnaround on those. Kind of depends on when the, the beginning of the test falls during the week. But yeah, mostly next business day turnaround with that one exception of the micro panel. Um, and I'm happy to report we largely hit it. Again, there are some exceptions, but really, you know, we are largely very compliant and, and, and successful in hitting that next business day turnaround mark. Typically, what that means is if you have a sample here by 11 o'clock on a business day, let's say a Tuesday morning at 11, most reports go out between 5 and 8 p.m. on the next business day. John, you do know you get charged for infomercials, oh. just, just so you know. Yeah, we can't we can't charge him for that, Jarbo. I asked the question. Oh, okay. Damn. Yeah. I'm dying here. That's, that's um, a freebie. Uh, well, that's good. That's good to know. And I think that you know, you guys are obviously on the right foot as far as streamlining and offer more consistent, quicker services, you know, that'll probably keep you going in the long run. 
Um, I'm good. We want to carry on. We also want to get to the big announcement from yesterday with the uh, FDA at some point. Or was there? Yeah, that's the question. How big of an announcement was it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you up for that one too. <laughs> yeah. So look, I mean, I, 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 to disclose to the audience, we pushed the recording of this pod back by a day because I wanted to to get in that uh, that webinar. And basically, what the uh, FDA has said is, in order for us to get involved with regulating hemp-derived cannabinoid products, we're going to have to lobby Congress. And basically, they said that's what they're going to do. So, <laughs> the, you know, USDA wants to create a path for, for regulating these things. Um, you know, good on them, I guess. But, you know, look, we, we, all, we know what they say about an act of Congress. So, you know, you know don't, don't get too excited yet. But are well, we, you know, I, lobbying Congress, uh, what a pathway. I've never heard of that before. Right. Uh, the, question, the question I have, and I've been, this has been one of my things. Why should the FDA have anything to do with cannabis? Look, I mean, fair question. Uh, you know, the FDA generally seems to be concerned with consumer safety. And if we're going to call it a, a drug or a food product, if that's, you know, that's no, but how, see, this how is, someone's going to classify it seems to fall under that purview. But I mean, you're asking a regulatory question that I don't fully know. Well, this, this is my pet peeve. Yeah. And I'll tell you, we've had wreck in this country for how long and med for how long? And the FDA has pretended like it didn't exist. If the FDA has any tooth, as soon as there was a recreational law in Oregon, I mean, in Washington and Colorado, Shouldn't the FDA come in at that point? Well, except for you've got that pesky problem of federal prohibition, you know. But but look, what I'm let's, saying let's, is, let's acknowledge like there's there's this enormous charade going out going on out there from a regular regulation point of view. I mean, basically, what you have is a, a status of federal prohibition, which means federal agencies can't put their shoulder into this. They can't they can't do what they've been charged to do, which is protect consumer safety and uh, you know, you basically you have a situation where, you know, the DEA still has to posture itself like all of these products are illegal, but the Justice Department seems to be making a, a enforcement decision to allow these state programs to continue. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's illogical. It's costing money. It's inefficient. And it compromises consumer safety. So, you know, task one in federal prohibition, if you ask me. It just seems to me that their whole guise has been that this is really, really bad. And it it uh, it just really this whole point is if you're going to be the people that's supposedly in charge of this, shouldn't you be leading on this subject? I mean, seriously, uh, FDA should be out point person. Right. And for the last years, all they've done is say, you got to do this in Congress. And it's still... Uh, I I think don't they go after I mean it just it seems weird and I really really am skeptical that they could pull it off even if all of a sudden they got it. Well, I think your skepticism is well earned, uh, and you know who knows what you know where this shakes out. I do think federal policy change seems to be imminent, but it may be minor, right? It may be an administrative change instead of an act of Congress. Uh, you know, there seems to be some momentum again around safe banking. I don't know. I'm out of the prediction business when it comes to figuring out federal cannabis policy. But it, it does feel like change, change does seem somewhat inevitable. But what's inevitable to me? You know, what kind of time timelines are we talking about? I, I, I just cannot venture a guess.
I think this might be a good time to go into the new Tennessee law because I've been researching the little puppy. I'm still not thrilled about it for the simple fact that they did not get a department or agency that was solely in charge of it. Yeah. This is, I mean, even the, I'd say the FDA is not that competent, but the TDA, they're in charge of growing things and checking kitchens. Yeah. So them go, having this department thrust upon them uh, is weird. But this is like a rogue little law. The Tennessee's cannabinoid law, if I'm not mistaken, is one of the most unique in the whole country. I think that's a fair statement. Um, you know, I think in order to understand the way that law came to be the way it is, you've got to understand where we were in February of 2022, <laughs> which is that, you know, we had leadership in our legislature that wanted to rest restrict, make such restrictive requirements around the production of these products. They want to make those requirements so strict that, that they may have vanished the market, right? In other words, they you, could, you would have required products that, that basically had no consumer demand by make the concentration so low that basically the market wouldn't exist anymore. Um, so, you know, we fought back about, uh, against that successfully. And in fact, we, we convinced those policymakers to take a regulation approach instead of a, a prohibit prohibitive approach. Um, so we were successful in beating back the effort in 2022, which meant that we were given a binary choice for 2023. And when I say we were given a binary choice, I'm not kidding. I was told directly. We can either come to terms on regulating this stuff or, yeah, we're going to ban you and it'll be successful this year. So were they but were they really serious on that? The uh, thing about in a state that has no uh, personal income tax and we're totally dependent on sales tax, were they really going to walk away from 10, 15 million dollars and, and basically being in a, a state that's so business friendly, were they really going to scuttle? multi-million dollar businesses? Yeah, so um, I understand why you're asking that question, and I asked it myself, which is why I thought a, a ban bill was illogical from the get-go, but I was told very directly, very directly that it was, that, that the effort was real. Now, at the end of the day, could it have passed? That's a different question, but I know that there are very power, power, powerful members of our legislature that were that you know we're gonna give it everything they had so the alternative was a regulation bill and there were a lot of folks that gave input on that i you know i'm proud to say that you know i i was um a part are you of one of the fathers oh i, I don't know I'm, look, I'm not that much but basically you know i had some I had some colleagues and regulators come to and policymakers come to me and say hey how do you make the labs honest and so i gave input into that that portion of it didn't didn't make it into the bill. However, <laughs> the bill charges the Department of Agriculture for promulgating rules around yes. what labs are going to be eligible to do the work and what do we have to test for in Tennessee. So the work is far from over. And in fact, in many ways, you could say you could say that passing that bill is really just a starter pistol to make sure we oh my get gosh. common sense common sense regulations in Tennessee in the end by July of 2024, when everything's got to be in place. I want to talk about the nature of the law as well. Um, and basically, the state of Tennessee legalized 
intoxicating substances. And I don't know if people have thought about that, but here, irregardless of what the DEA says or the FDA, we have a standalone law here in Tennessee, which in most places, you know, it's kind of under the auspices of medical or whatever, but there's very few standalone laws in the country that basically legalize a whole host of things. Have you thought about it in that respect? Well, look, I mean, we uh, have derived cannabinoids. I'm talking about tetracannabinoids. I'm talking about the Delta-8 THCs of the world, the Delta-10s. As long as they are packaged and marketed in a compliant way, as long as the, the uh, per serving concentration is less than 25 milligrams, they're legal in Tennessee. That's what the law says. I know, but for the first time in this country, really, there has been this, this market established and now is going to be regulated that is irregardless because this is the, the thing. We were talking about the FDA. Well, under this state law, the FDA does not have any auspices over this at all. Uh, I mean, certainly, certainly under the current environment, that's true. That's right. Neither does the DEA. Right. Based on the DEA statements. That right. That's what I'm saying. Is. So right. when you think about it is for better or worse, we have a little cannabis experiment going on here, which is being in the cannabis industry. I am finding infinitely interesting because as this rolls out, I think there's going to be so other things, it might even banking, other things that might be a result of this law. Look, I can tell you that there are Tennessee banks right now that are aggressively wanting yeah, to, that's to what I'm saying. deposit and finance business from, from hemp operators. That's yeah. what I'm, yeah. And yeah. that's what I'm saying. It's profound, especially when you look at the neighboring states, Virginia, Arkansas, there's a whole host of them that just said, nope, eh, you're not going right. to have yeah. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. I believe that Tennessee is positioning itself as a leader here. Now, having said that, we are not the only state that has taken the approach of, of allowing but regulating hemp-derived cannabinoids. There are others. I'll just rattle a few off. I'm not, this is not going to be a comprehensive list, but, you know, um, uh, Ohio, Louisiana, New York, Colorado, California. Uh, but Although they're not Colorado's protected Colorado's by law, state. Colorado's law is actually very restrictive, but no, but um, like in Louisiana, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, it's still under the auspices of the farm bill. Louisiana did not come in and do their own hemp derived cannabinoid law. Well, what I can tell you is that that final products in Louisiana require a full panel and they have a developed analyte list with action limits. Yes. But what I'm saying is there isn't a law that legalized D8 in Ohio or Louisiana. And that's why I'm saying that in Tennessee, what makes it so original or unique is the fact that this is not really based upon the farm bill. Uh, no, you know, and keep in mind, you know, the farm bill really, it addresses basically what the USDA can address, which is that, which means... The growing of crops. And so once harvest occurs, the farm bill's purview really sort of peters out. <laughs> so so you know, and from a policy perspective, that's the case. So so yes, I mean Tennessee's taking an active an active hand in trying to bring some order to the market, trying to put in take in place some safety, consumer safety measures. It's an imperfect bill, but I'm I'm proud of the fact that we got it done. The industry survives. 
There's a whole lot of family businesses out there that were that are facing the very real prospect of not surviving. And we now have a regulating regulatory framework under which you can continue to operate. Well, there is going to be attrition on this, you do know, as a result of this bill. Yeah, there may be Harold, you know, I can't I can't deny that. No, no, and that's not yeah. and that nothing you can do about that. And yeah. it's not John, it's not your damn bill. No, it's not. <laughs> uh but the whole point is, is that, you know, there are always winners and losers with any sort of uh, laws or p- legislation. Yeah. And again, I go back to I go back to the fundamental flaw in the system, which is federal prohibition. Speaking of which. Yeah. Uh, THCO, THCP, mm-hmm. HHC, THCB. Thoughts? Uh, just, just really the one I can only reflect what has sort of been the new policy reality, which is the DEA came out and said that these truly, truly synthetics, in other words, a cannabinoid created in the lab that has no natural basis whatsoever, they are going to call that a scheduled substance. And so, yet they're legal in Tennessee. But that's it, what I'm saying. Yeah, according, is, yeah, it's, so, it's, that's why we have a little unique law here. Is that basically they said, eh, we're going to do what we want here. Well, and that's you, true, but Tennessee law won't won't trump uh, a federal a federal. Well, no, because if the federal government wanted to go into any rec state, really wanted to, they could go in and bust people anytime they want. That's exactly right. That's so, right. so, so that's what I'm what saying. The, what the what the feds change is, you know, it just makes it to where I mean, look, almost overnight we stopped seeing THCO samples in in the lab. Really? And, and it, it, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, it did. It, you know that we, we talk about uh, the correlation there. Uh, uh, let me fill in real quick. Yep. DEA did this ruling, and the two things that they went after the most was O THCO and THCP. That was the reason. How soon after that got announced did you see all of a sudden people really starting to uh, say, "Uh, we're not going to do this"? Well, what I can tell you is that the numbers immediately fell. But it still has this still hasn't completely gone away, right? In other words, um, you know, th- there's there's a, there are a lot of folks that either are disregarding uh, the regulation or aren't fully aware of it, which is actually what I think is probably the case. Um, but you know, I mean, just immediately THCO samples just started just started dwindling. You know, what what I'm talking about is what we're publishing in a final report, right? So again, like, you know, as far as what came in the lab and how it was labeled, I mean, very often we don't have any sense of the chemical composition of a sample because it's labeled with some, you know, obscure <laughs> name that, that has no relation <laughs> to the chemistry, right? But what I'm saying yeah. is what well, we started publishing as THCO in a report immediately started dwindling. So how long did it take you guys to develop for these new funky I call them funky. These are little funky synthetic cannabinoids. I'm glad you asked that because it's 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 an important way for me to illustrate our approach to the work, which is that we take an approach that says it's better to be right than first. You know, what we've seen are labs out there that are publishing ISO certified labs, right, that are publishing synthetic cannabinoids that are basically brand new novel cannabinoids before certified reference materials are even available for those for those chemicals that so new Boom labs does not do that okay so and we have seen we have seen labs have to redact reports because they issued batches of reports and 
the the data was faulty. We don't ever want to find ourselves in that in that position. So the way we approach it is once a certified reference standard is available, which means it's ISO, it comes out of an ISO accredited lab and is certified officially as being the substance that that's contained in in the in the material. We bring that into the lab. We conduct weeks, sometimes months of R and D. And basically, in Google Labs, we kind of have an, an R and D season where R and D is more heavy than than in others, and that's typically in the the first half of the year. Okay. Um. So we really kind of put our shoulder into it at that point, and then and then we amend our assays once we feel comfortable okay. that the data is validated. So we know you got great protocol. I'd like to get your personal views. Uh, and first of all, you don't have to answer this question, but anybody that comes on here gets asked: Are you a cannabis user of any sort? Uh, from time to time, I'll use cannabis for sleeplessness, but other okay. than that, typically not. It's just it's just kind of not my thing from a consumption point of view. Sometimes I, I do have bits of sleeplessness, and I'll turn to cannabis, and it really works. The reason I'm asking that is I'd love to get your personal views on the, the, the THCOs and the P's and all this. Well, how do you feel about them personally? I don't, I've never tried them. No, but I mean, no. Do you think that this should be a part of the industry or is the, uh, let's put it this way. Is there in your mind a line between what is acceptable as far as artificially produced cannabinoids and, and stuff that basically we don't feel bad about doing D8 because D8 actually exists in nature. Yeah. Should there be a line? I guess I'm going to answer the question and say, yeah, there should be. Now that's not to say, I think that, you know, everything just because it's synthetic means it should be banned. I'm not going to go that far. And I also, I, and, and, and I'm going to give you my reasoning here, Harold, but I, I want to make sure that I'm not painting with too broad of a brush. Um, the reason is because of the experience that we've seen in the lab. I mean, we have seen samples of these synthetics come through that are chock full of heavy metals, chock full yeah. of, of solvents. And, because of the way they have to make it. Yeah, because it's because of the, the means of production. Yeah, and so And so that is what gives me a concern. So again, just because something isn't perfectly natural, I don't think that inherently flaws the material, but it can be inherently flawed because of the way it's been produced. Well, the thing that bothers me, and I hate to be like this, well, I am an old cannabis person, is the fact that they're beta testing on human beings. Yeah. I mean, if you said yourself that you, you haven't had a chance to even develop a protocol to test for it, we know sure as hell they haven't tested on people. I want to be clear. I mean, we have a lot of good and sophisticated customers that are in this business, right? So again, I'm not, I don't want to say that just because it's synthetic, that it's necessarily flawed. I will say this, and this is just my opinion. If a product's going to market before there's even a certified reference material available for it, I find that problematic. Thank um, you. <clears throat> but, but, you know, we are in a wild west moment. There's no doubt about it. And again, more clarifying action from our federal government would help a, a unified standard about what labs will cut it and which, which labs won't. A, a unified standard about what we need to test for in cannabis. All critical, critical public policy planks that, that need to get installed. The synthetics have segued me into my last question before we let you shamelessly self-promote, which you've kind of been doing. Thinking about AI yeah. and and cannabinoids. One of the things that have has really stifled R&D is the myriad of cannabinoids. What is it, like a couple hundred that can be tested for at this point? 
seems to me that part of the things that it really has, because one of the things I have noticed in, as in an industry standard, the amount of money going into research and cannabis, as soon as, what do you want to call it, the industry peaked out because sales, even in rec, CBD, have all stagnated the last two years. Maybe because of AI used properly, that we can actually go in and find some of these compounds that before we would have never been economically feasible. Are are you at, because uh, what you do seems like AI would really help you guys a bunch. So I agree with you. I'm incredibly excited about the prospect of artificial intelligence in an analytical lab. I will say that the research on it is all very new. Um, so, you know, my knowledge as well as everyone else's is pretty limited at this, this point, but I can tell you, there have been successful trials of using AI to analyze chromatography. Again, all this stuff is in its infancy, but mm -hmm. um, I do believe it's real. I believe there's going to come a day. Uh, we have a software partner right now that is heavy into this research, and we talk a lot. So I, I can make you no promises or no predictions about when we're going to see it. All I know is the work is very much underway, and, and the promise is real. COAs are still a mystery to people. They really, really are. And I'm not I'm talking about lay people. I'm talking about people in the daggone industry. And because once it gets down into these compounds and stuff, it, you know, it really is tough to keep track of. And most people aren't even aware of a bunch of this stuff. And then because the final frontier with this, especially with AI, which has been stifling, is like you said, you mentioned terpenes. The, the new part of the research has been that, and because we were talking about potencies, well, there's studies that people haven't, you know, consuming 17% THC with the right terpene combination seems to be supply a better experience than something that's 24, 25% THC with a different terpene profile. Sure. So the ability to come in here and to be able to come in and do an analysis on a plant on the front end because of combining the, the cannabinoid ratios and the terpene ratios, the, that would be, oh my goodness gracious gosh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that would advance the science so much. Go one further. further. I mean, let's talk about flavonoids. Let's talk about yes. in, in cannabis root. I mean, there's it's, it's a complex plant. Ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah. Are you guys, this is one thing my wife has at a couple of times has made uh, a root topicals made out of cannabis roots. Mm -hmm. It was impossible to find anybody that could do analysis on cannabis root. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be rare uh, today. Um, I will say that we have started to see the demand, uh, you know, and we try and address consumer demand. I cannot tell you when we're going to be able to roll it out. Um, you know, we've got a lot going on with some of our expansions right now, but I can tell you that flavonoids and triterpenoids and monoterpenes and alkaloids, it's coming. Uh, <laughs> and labs are going to get in the business because producers are interested in it because they, because the theories are out there that it can achieve a therapeutic effect. And if, look, if it's helping people, the market's going to, going to answer the call and, you know, labs are going to be a part of it. New Bloom Labs is going to be a part of it. Because what I think the new frontier with our industry, and it, and right now our industry has sort of, what's a nice way, peaked out, stagnated, whatever, is that 
the infatuation has always been on potency. Yeah. And it has never been on customer experience. And I think that's the last frontier when it comes to and said, I'm coming in here and give me something that can bang, you know, get me intoxicated beyond belief. Or can I get somebody something that comes in and puts me in the right place that's conducive to my lifestyle? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think I think that that is the true promise of cannabis. I believe that custom formulations based on a person's own body chemistry, I think that's a reality someday. I think AI can help with that. Um, but yeah, that that is the frontier. Um, there are folks working on it. We have folks uh, in locally in Tennessee that are working on many, many of the promises that that you just outlined. And uh, and I'm glad to hear that you know you're you're thinking very progressively about that. Um, well, it's because history. the one other thing about it now, I get to plug a little bit for Tennessee Homegrown, is that we have been serving customers since 2016. Mm-hmm. And by and large, what we have learned about our products has been through, it's antidotal. It is through our customers. Yeah. They'll tell us this works better. This not, you know, because we found out that the, one of the things about the ratio between the cannabinoids. Yep. It just, once you started that and you seen, okay, they responded to this. They did, you know, it, this works better. But it's been, you know, like I said, you know, having thousands of customers and then correlating that to try to see if there's any trend line on products. And we have adjusted our products accordingly. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to charge you for that one. <laughs> Cause that was, that was, that was an unsolicited. So yeah, you weren't asked Harold, <laughs> even though it's your podcast, you're getting charged. All right. You're right. Well, speaking of that, John, we're going to have to ask you back. You know that, right? Sure. Okay, so this is the point where you get to shamelessly self-promote who, what, and where, and how people can get a hold of. Well, look, I'm going to keep it short because I did already kind of have my moment earlier in the pod. But <laughs> look, we are we are a Tennessee-based uh, laboratory um, focusing on supporting uh, the hemp-derived cannabinoids industry coast to coast. And so I guess I'll use the, the balance of my time just simply to say there are some announcements coming. Look to the Northeast and look to the Deep South. And from thereafter beyond, and guys, I hope you'll have me on when it's time to, to talk really specifically about those things. Then you get charged. That's fine. <laughs> All right, Mr. Step, yes, what sir. all exciting things have you got to pluck? Don't Aren't you doing the CMA Fest and a bunch of yep. the stuff? Yep, I'll be in. Is that, that for a, still for ABC? That's still for the ABC television network. Network, okay. Your favorite streamers. Um, yeah, I'll be in Nashville starting Tuesday and uh, spending five or six weeks putting that show together. Well, whatever happened to the Garth Brooks thing? We're playing Hurry Up and Wait. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Ham Farmer, and you've been listening to the Full Contact Cannabis Podcast and sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown and our new sponsor, the Old Hemp Farmer's Wife Topicals. And as always, keep one eye on the weather and one eye on the market. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com.